Billy, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This is episode seven of Beloved by God. Billy has been doing recovery work for a very long time. He is currently an interventionist at a place called Victory locally in Lafayette, uh, does incredible work there. And so I'm just thankful to have the opportunity to have Billy on the show today and uh, welcome. Glad to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, Will. Absolutely, man. Exciting. So the first thing I'd like to do today is, is open us up in prayer. And so, Father God, i just so grateful today. Billy and I have the opportunity to talk to each other about his life and his testimony, Lord. Lord, I ask that uh, Billy be blessed and all of his family be blessed and all the men are already being blessed upon uh, that come into contact with him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So, Billy, first question I have is, you know, tell me a little bit about who you are and, and how you grew up. Well, I grew up in a middle-class home. There was certainly drinking in the home, and my mother had eight sisters, and they were all alcoholic or married to alcoholics. Was never abused or anything, but I would say maybe neglected, but I can't blame my parents for what I ended up going through. I had two other brothers, and I have two sisters. I don't remember going to church hardly at all. Um, School was always tough for me. I had trouble focusing, had trouble concentrating, you know. I was one of those kids that always felt like a square peg in a round hole, you know. Like I said, we were unchurched. You know, my parents, they weren't atheists or anything like that. They just, you know, that wasn't a part of our lives. When I was 10 or 11 years old, one of my brothers, my oldest brother, as a matter of fact, he was going to LSU. He was he was brilliant. He had a photographic memory. He was athletic, very uh, well-read, and a 4.0 student at LSU. He played football when he was at Lafayette High. Well, he came he came to Lafayette to go to a Lafayette High game and on the way back to Baton Rouge of course there was no interstate back then and he was going back by Livonia came around a curve there was an 18 wheeler that was stopped and it didn't have his flares out or or any of those triangles or anything like that and when he went around the curve he hit he hit that truck and uh, it killed him and um you know, when, you, when you're raised in a, a family that's less than functional, which most of them are, I would say, some a lot worse than others, you learn that you don't trust, you don't feel, and you don't speak. And I'm talking about speaking about things that are deep inside of you, you right. know. Right. And I learned, that, I learned that lesson well. So I stuffed every everything, all all of my all of my feelings, all my hurt, all of my pain, and everything like that, and just I don't know, you know, kind of just blew it off. I was I was hurt, I was devastated, but you know, it was it was all inside. So anyway, so that leaves my brother and I and my my two sisters. My brother was 16 months older than me. We did a lot of things together. After my brother died, my parents thought we need to go to church. Yeah. Okay, so my mother was Catholic. My father was Baptist. We were going to go to the Catholic church. So my dad, my brother, and I went to be confirmed. And we would go into this big room, this big rectory. It was, you know, it was, it was almost intimidating. And the priest would sit there, and I'm sure he was saying some really good things. And he was reading out of a book, and I heard blah, 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 blah. It was monotone. I wasn't listening. Like I said, I had trouble focusing anyway. 
But we did it. We went through it. After that, my parents attended church regularly. My brother and I didn't, and uh, we were supposed to go to, they called it CYU, the Catholic Youth. But we never did. He could drive, I couldn't. We'd go visit our friends, do what people that age do. Anyway, four years later, we had friends that came in from Texas. He was a doctor's son, and, and then his friend the doctor's son, had, he had a very, very, very fast car. They had tires, literally racing tires, you know, for quarter mile drag racing. It had like two treads on it, you know. So we were going to New Orleans. Him, his friend, my brother and I, go do what kids do. You know, you could go drink a few beers over there and nobody would, would bother you or anything. My uncle, who raised me part of my life, I was very, very close to him. He was in the catering business. And he, he asked me, he had a banquet, like a thousand people, three meals a day. He asked me if I would please stay and help him. He needed help, you know, and I had, I had a lot of respect for him. So I said, okay, I'll stay. And I really wanted to go to New Orleans with him. Yeah. Well, on the way back, they were over by Livonia. I don't know, you know, the, the old highway. Mm-hmm. And um, it's lined with oak trees. It started raining. He lost control of the car, hit an oak tree, killed his friend, killed my brother. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, like, devastated. I mean, you know, like, I mean, totally devastated. I went upstairs. All my aunts and uncles were downstairs. I didn't feel like there was anybody I could talk to or anything like that. I went upstairs by myself, and, and, you know, I, I said, I remember this distinctly. I said, you know, God, this isn't right. I said, you know. You're the creator of the universe, and you're going to allow this to happen. I said, I need to talk to you. Nothing happened. And I said, said, looked up, I said, I will never acknowledge your existence. I will never pray to you. I'm through. It's over. And it was. It was over. I've been in some tough situations. Prayer never, ever came up for me, Mm -hmm. you know. So, like I said, I was, you know, devastated. A lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and uh, I even developed an ulcer when I was uh, in senior in high school, and they, they couldn't figure it out, you know. Uh, I've had one of those. Yeah. They're brutal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Somebody that age shouldn't have an ulcer, you know. Stress. Yeah. But it was all this stuffing that I did uh, inside of me, and I, I'll never forget, he was like a psychiatrist you'd see on an old movie. He would sit there smoking his pipe. And he, I'd leave with a prescription. And that was it. But there was no solution. Nobody in my work with alcoholics and drug addicts, which I do a lot, I always want to know where they come from. Because it's that initial hurt, that trauma. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be sexual. But, and, it, and, and it doesn't have to be real bad, but it can form who you are for the, for the rest of your life, what you think of your, yourself. I'll never forget, I was, uh, I'd done something wrong. I was in the kitchen with my mother and my father. My father was pretty passive. My mother was pretty aggressive. And I'd done something. I remember she slammed the oven door and said, you'll never amount to anything close to what your brothers were. Wow. You know? And I thought, hey, well, that don't bother me. Well, it did, you know. Right. I, I, I lived my life. Trying you know, to measure up and trying to measure up and, and then giving up, you know, and, and I, I'm worthless. 
So anyway, that was my, my growing up. Right. That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And so you basically get to a point, you lose brothers and severely traumatic experience after traumatic experience. You've got a lot of pain in the home, a lot of anger towards God because of what's happened. And even denouncing him, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, as, as, as growing up with two atheist parents, I remember my own frustration one day. I had a, when my friend died, was killed in a car wreck. I remember blaming God for that and being so angry how he mm. could take this man from me, 18 years old, uh, life in front of him, and he's gone. And I got so angry with God, I ended up breaking a, a queen size bed in half. <laughs> I was like, picked up the bed and like, whole smashed it. I understand. Yeah, I was so angry. Uh, and then I just, for a while, spiraled out of control. Uh, and I sought my own God, my own fulfillment and other things, and then felt more empty than ever. So, so Billy, lots of tragedy, lots of you know trials and tribulations as a child. Uh, what happens next? Where do you go from that pain? And where do you go from there? To alcohol. <laughs> um, people that I hung around with, you know, we, we, started, we, you know, we started drinking. Yeah. And um, drinking, I was, I was very shy, unsure of myself, low self-worth, you know. You take a few drinks and it loosen, loosens you up. You can talk to the girls and everything like that. It wasn't a, a, a problem yet. It was more of a solution when you really look at it. When I was a senior, I guess right after I graduated, I had a girlfriend and I got her pregnant. And so... They carted her off somewhere. I saw her one time and I tried to talk to her and she wouldn't talk to me. That was a big, big regret in my life, you know. Yeah. One of one of many, really. Anyway, uh, we started using drugs. This was in the 60s. Vietnam War, hippies, yeah. protests, head down to my shoulders. <laughs> I keep a picture of it in my office just to just to remind me, you know. There was a, a small group of us, and our whole idea what would be a good life would be if we could live completely out of society. I mean, it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Out of society, it, which suited me fine. I didn't like society. I didn't, I didn't like him much. I didn't like myself, but I didn't, re- I didn't really know that. I started off with marijuana and graduated this, uh, you know, LSD, cocaine, on and on. A friend of mine came over to my house. He had this girl with him, and she was really attractive, I thought. I pulled him aside. I said, man, who is that? And he says, well, she cleans my house. I said, well, I want her to clean my house. <laughs> so I did. I got her to clean my house. And of course, you know, I had all the ingredients. I mean, you know, it wasn't my good looks for sure. You know, I had, I was around a lot of, a lot of drugs and alcohol and, and people that were just dropped out of society. <laughs> I found out when I quit doing all that, I wasn't quite as good looking as I thought I was. <laughs> I had a friend tell me recently, he, he didn't realize how bad of a cookie was until he stopped smoking and everything tastes different. <laughs> yeah. Same. yeah, same thing. She couldn't take birth control pills. I couldn't stay away from her. Yeah. So we start popping out kids. You know, we, we, have a, we have a kid, neither one of us equipped to have children. A lot of fighting. You know, I spent a lot of my life trying to fight to be right. You know, we had a son. 
And, and this was in a time when they didn't know about the fetus being harmed from the mother user. I, I really don't think she'd have, she'd have used, you know, but we, we didn't know. We had three boys. She had a daughter before who I ended up raising, you know, like, like my own. Right. I told you that she introduces me as her father. Awesome. And I had my oldest son from my first girlfriend right out of, out, out of high school. So um, five kids. When, they, when they, they started growing up, they were young when I got sober, but their mother continued to, to drink until really until we divorced. Like I said, we were pretty much out of society. I lived way out in the country, and I didn't, I didn't hardly ever go to town. Just did my thing, you know pretty worthless as, as a father, as a husband, as a yeah. selfish, self-centered. Anyway, I got worse and worse and worse and worse. We ended up splitting up. I've been married a, a couple of times. We had built this nice house out in the country. I had 14 acres and everything like that, but wow. we couldn't get along. I had a lot to do with that, you know. I'm getting, I'm getting worse and worse and worse. I got to where... You know, they talk about an invisible line that you, that you cross. And I don't know when I crossed it, but I crossed it, that I would get started using and couldn't stop. Yeah. And it would be several days later. Then it got to be where I was blacking out. Not only was I up for several days, but people were telling me what I did. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it was me right. do, doing it. I thought, I... I that I don't do things like that, right. but I was. I, w- I was doing that. Anyway, one night, I had two kids with me in diapers, and we were at Don's Seafood. I don't remember anything about this night. I was totally blacked out. Yeah. And so this is what they tell me, that I'm sitting at the table. The kids are running around. I'm sitting there having some drinks. And I'm sticking my, it was in January, putting my pocket, my hand in my pocket and coming out with a palm full of cocaine and snorting cocaine right at the table. Wow. Somebody called the cops. Sure. Thank God. (laughs) So they came and they, and they arrested me, put me in a cell. I remember being, vaguely remember being chained to a rack, to a rail, like an animal, you know, Uh, but don't remember what I did. I woke up the next morning and I looked around and I was in jail. Mm-hmm. And I'd done, done a lot of things that could put me in jail, but I'd never been there. I knew I wasn't jail material. So I looked at my, the guy in the cell with me and I said, what did I do? What am I doing here? And he told me what I did. And I thought, man, I'm in real trouble. I'm, I'm, I've been out of control, but I'm way out of control now, you know? So my dad, my uncle, who loved me when I was unlovable, and they came and got me out of jail, and they put me in a psychiatric hospital. At that time, there were no treatment centers. Nobody knew what a treatment center was. I didn't know what what alcoholism was. Drug addiction to me was a guy under the bridge in New Orleans, and I was as, as addicted as a person can get. So they put me in this psychiatric hospital. I'll never forget Dr. Dr. Blackburn. He came in there after five or six days, and he looked at me. He said, they did a bunch of testing on me. I weighed 105 pounds. Wow. My, I had 
sores that wouldn't heal. My kidney st- studies were up. My liver studies were up. I was, I mean, I was dead. I just hadn't dropped. You know, they did mental things. I was slow. I was on the verge, you know, of, of, of killing myself. I don't think it mattered to me at that time. So anyway, he says, we can't help you. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know? And he said, there's a place in Baton Rouge that might be able to help you. Yeah, I said, what is it? He said, it's CDU, it's called. I didn't, I didn't know what CDU was or anything. I said, I'll go. Because I knew that if I went out, I was going to use again. Right. And I had totally lost control, so no telling what was next. And so I, I, I go to CDU, and I'm sober for, um, I've been sober for nine days when I'm, when I'm there. And I'm telling you, I start bouncing off the walls. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was feeling all these feelings that I had stuffed for so many years. And I went to the nurse's station. I told him, I said, my sanity is at stake. I said, I am losing my mind. And they, I said, can y'all give me a shot or something? No, they, they were tough. They didn't, uh-uh. You know, you just go gut it out. So I went in, in back into my room, and my roommate looked at me and says, why don't you pray? And I said, pray? I said, I hadn't prayed, I think I counted for 17 years or something. He said, maybe you ought to try. And I got down on my knees next to that bed, and I said, help me. And that's all I said. But looking back, I had surrendered. I had surrendered to something bigger than me. I raised the white flag to the top of the pole. I mean, it was it was so over, you know, for me. Within the next week or so, and I'm still foggy, believe me. So I know this came from God because I, I wasn't capable of, of, of putting two good thoughts together. I had uh, like a burning bush experience. And God wrote these things on my heart that are still there today and that I've used extensively over the last 42 years is uh, the first thing was, is that God does exist. The second thing is he loves me right where I am. The third thing was that he forgives me because I cannot carry the burden of my past. It's, It's too much. The only thing that would give any value to what I went through is if I could use it to help others. And the last thing was complacency would kill me. Mm-hmm. And I've seen complacency kill tons of them. I needed to know about this recovery. And I needed to know about this God that I was so angry with. They told me I had to change 180 degrees. 179 wasn't going to do it. Even they had a family week, which was pretty brutal, where my family got to tell me what I looked like to them. They wouldn't even let me come home for the weekend. They sent me to Minnesota, you know. So I start this journey that I know nothing about. So it came to me that, number one, about recovery, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean? You know, it had to mean to me that I would go to meetings, that I would change all my friends. I didn't have one friend I could hang around with. It, It meant that I had to study recovery, I had to put both feet in. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people that 
come into recovery, whether it's CR or, or AA or whatever, and it's like they're outside the window looking in. They, they don't come in, you know, and do the work that it takes to find some peace and ultimately try to help somebody else, you know? It's like they put their foot in the water and it's cold and they're like, oh, I don't want to get in. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So I needed to find a church too. I've been to a thousand Bible studies. I need to know this God that I chose, but I wanted to know what his character was and what did he expect out of me? Because I didn't know. I didn't know anything. And I needed to know uh, about what am I going to do to maintain my recovery and ultimately be able to help others. So I got out. I'm in this. It's like they dropped me off in a foreign country and I don't know the language. I lived outside of society for so long that it, it took me a while. Simple things like I made up my bed every morning, started doing that. Yeah. And that, that, that there's a, an admiral that wrote a book about that. The people that I sponsor, I insist that they do that. I insist that they do their prayer and meditation to start their day. And I, I remember walking up the sidewalk and there was a, a candy wrapper. And I'm going through my mind. I'm thinking, pick it up. Nah, you don't have to pick it up. Pick it up. You don't have to pick it up. Oh, pick the thing up, for God's sake. <laughs> so, I mean, simple Simple things like that, being kind, being compassionate, just a total change. I mean, in little things like I was driving where the old Lourdes Hospital was, that's where my uncle lived around there, and they had an old couple, and I'm right up on their bumper, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and then it, and it hit me. I, I said, God, these, they're probably going to the doctor. They don't, look, I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it doesn't matter. You can't live like this. So it's, it's been a million little things like that. I say I look at my, my life since then, and I have an important part after this, but um, like the stock market, yeah. the trend has been up, but there's been a lot of ups and downs. Well, so I found a church. Uh, I really liked the pastor. They had an altar call, which I didn't really know what that was either. And I went. I was just moved to go. And I accepted Christ as my Savior. Nice. Not really knowing what that meant, mm -hmm. you know? But like I said, I was, I was starting to get involved in Bible studies. I was getting, you know, I was started doing that. Um, a friend of mine that went to the same treatment as I did started doing interventions. And he asked me to go with him, and I went. I'll never forget, it was like a, a, a cool, crisp November morning. And we did an intervention on this guy that his family said there wasn't any way in that he would ever go to treatment or anything like that. Right. And Glenn and I did the, did the intervention. I hate to say we were good at it, but, but, but we were. We had been there. Right. And, and uh, the guy went to treatment, and we... We walked outside in that cool early morning, and I looked at Glenn. I said, it doesn't get any better than this, you know? Mm -hmm. I really believe that God wants me to do this. So I started doing interventions. I've been doing them for 42 years. Wow. Almost 43 years. And so people just come to you and say, I need help, or how does it... Yeah, and family members, and um, I've never advertised. That's how you know God's in your corner and using you when people are gravitating to you because yeah. they've heard 
hey, this guy here, I've heard about you through others as well. He's been there. He's been in that dark place. He knows how to get people to submit and get in some help, some treatment. Yeah, and you deal with families. It's amazing how, I mean, families are so hurt. They're so confused. They're, I mean, it's, 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 it's really something. You always suggest that the family gets help. Yeah. Gets help, too. Because they've know. been traumatized. They've been through hell and back. You better believe it, yeah. yeah. My son, the one that was uh, my oldest son, March 30th of uh, 2022, he had been in jail and he got out. He taught me that I can love the person and hate the illness. He stayed here for seven months because he crushed his heels. He wasn't even allowed in my house. I would go get him for lunch or something like that. But I took him in because I felt like that. And he lived here for seven months. And then when it was time for him to go, he went, I mean, he had surgery. He was hurting. I was being treated for prostate cancer. I'd come home tired on the couch and from the back room I'd hear, Daddy, can you bring me some Gatorade? You know, but I did it with a glad heart. It's, and, 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 and let me tell you something. He put us through some stuff. I'm telling you. I loved him. I hated his behavior and I hated the illness that he had. He overdosed and um, a sad deal. With the drugs they have today, I have a friend that has a funeral home in Maurice and he does about a 50-mile radius. He has a crematory yeah. in a funeral home and he's been open for three, four years. He averages two ODs a week. My God. With fentanyl and all the other things that are out there. I've seen it kill people that I love. Oh, yeah. And then interventions, like how many interventions would you say you've done over the course of 42 years? Probably between four and 500, I I guess. I, I guess. Sure. You know, God's good. I have people come up to me all the time and thank me. I don't know who they are. Uh, you know, and, and God, I think, looks at me and says, you don't need an ego, son. <laughs> you know? I know who they are. I made them, yeah. Yeah, that's right. He knows who they are. Right. So, um, you know, and, and I'll go all out on them, you know, if they have insurance, if they have Medicaid, there's different facilities and everything like that, you know. It's just a passion. Sure. It's a passion that I have for that in, while doing my own recovery. I have. I still have a sponsor. That's good. I go to church. I, I, I did the men's addiction group for 18 years at the Bayou Celebrate Recovery. I love it. It's changed over the years, but I would do men's step studies one after the other, after the other, after the other, and, and um, I guess I, you know, I got a little burnout. And, sure. and, it's easy um, to do. It takes a lot. Of, it's a huge commitment. It is, and I'm sure I'll do it again. You know, God never wastes a hurt. I had two interventions that I did. I did one, I didn't know this guy. He had met one of the pastors one time at the church. He didn't, he wasn't an attender, but he met him. He drove down from Maine, left his family, didn't tell him he was leaving. And he was working here, very talented guy. He drank, whoa, God, did he drink. He came here to drink, and he did. He had had enough. He was going to academy, buy a pistol, go to the levee, and shoot himself, okay? He went to academy. It was a Sunday. He went at 9 o'clock. It opens at 10. He went home and got drunk and didn't make it to academy. The next day, for some reason, he called that card, one of the pastors. He called me, and we met him at the church and brought him to detox put a plan together for him and everything. 
and he's probably been sober 17 years now. Wow. And he'd take the low bottom ones. He'd take them into his house. He would go to the Salvation Army with a carton of cigarettes and hand out cigarettes and sit and smoke and talk to those guys. And then I had another one that, that just lets me know that God has a sense of humor. I mean, he, I, I couldn't even believe this. I was in Atlanta with my daughter, and her, her father, her real father, lived about 50 miles from there. And he, he, but she never had anything to do with him. He never had anything to do with her. And she got a call from his wife and said that he was in horrible shape something bad with right. drugs and everything so she asked me um she says i, I don't know what to do would, would you help me and i said yeah i'll help you i get him i got him on the phone i said listen we're gonna do an intervention on him i said i'm gonna go in there early we're gonna we're gonna i'm gonna train y'all and then we're gonna i want you to get a plane ticket to baton rouge i'm gonna call the tall center and make sure they have a bed and I said, we're going to do an intervention on him. We're going to put him on that plane. They said, oh, he'll never go. He'll never go. Just do it, you know. I got up about 2 in the morning. I drove over there and did the training and everything like that. And he came in, and we started talking to him. I have him read letters and do some stuff. And, and um, he said he would go. And he was in his room packing and I always see that as kind of a tender moment, you know. Right. So I went in I went in there while he was packing. This is my ex-wife's ex-husband. Okay. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean that's you've raised the daughter. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so I told him, I said, Steve, I admire your courage for going. I said, That that takes a lot of courage. He looked at me, he said, You know, Billy, he said, I was coming to get my camera and get my pistol. And I was going in the woods and say my last statement and blow my brains out. It's important yeah. that we reach out. And you can stop people. To people. Yeah. Because you don't know what people are going through. Yeah. Everybody's got a story. Yeah. And everybody is, is capable of being on the brink and yeah. falling into the ditch. I mean, that's what the enemy anybody. wants. Anybody. Yeah. And, you, and you know, I always, of course, pray before I go. I see myself as a channel. Yeah. I'm a channel of God's peace. That's all I am. I'm a channel. And I have had these experiences more than once where we'd be at a table doing the intervention. And then all of a sudden, I'm above the table looking down at everybody talking and everything like that. I mean, it sends chills down my back. Like a true out-of-body experience. Yeah. Like you're, you're observing everything going on. Right. Wow. Yeah. I've had an experience like that myself. Uh, you have? I have. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. How did you learn how to do interventions? There's not like you don't go to high school and do an intervention no. class. How did you learn to do that? Well, my buddy was good at it. And I don't know. You know, I've, I've always been easy to talk to. You know, everybody has a gift. So um, that's how I learned. Then I read a book. When I read the book, I thought, wow, that's exactly what I do. I've been to a class on intervention. It's the, the same philosophy as I have on it. You know, some people say, no, you got to wait till they hit the bottom. I don't believe that. I believe that you can, you can catch them on the way down, and if they don't quit, it's going to sure mess it up for them. Right. And with the, the drugs and everything out there now, 
it's just these these kids aren't even addicted. Right. They're just taking a an Adderall to go party. Yeah. And they die. Right. They're not bad kids. They haven't made terrible no. decisions their whole life. That's like, right. They just take something that they shouldn't have taken, and they're gone. And That's right. I really like what you just said. I almost envisioned it like a football game where the ball's coming down, and it's going to hit the ground, right? It's going to hit bottom. Right. But you're there to intercept it before yeah. it hits the bottom. And then if nothing else, um, the family, we it's all on the table. Because, like I said, in a family uh, like that, you you know, you don't speak, you don't feel, and you don't talk. And when you get with a family like that, they've learned that well. So at least you get to put it on the table now, you know, make a decision. Right. And you've done hundreds of these. How many would you say were successful versus, like, the person wasn't receptive? And that happens. I would say that 85 to 90 percent have been successful. Wow. That's amazing. And success to me is getting them to treatment. That's where it ends for me. I mean, you know, I mean, if they want to talk when they come back or need sponsors or what good meetings they are, good church, whatever, you know, I'm I'm there for them. But, you know, that's that's a job. I tell them when they say, yeah, I literally want them in the car within 30 minutes. Right. On the way. You know, it's almost like you're an EMT showing up to an emergency scene and you're trying to get that person. You're not going to do the surgery and put them all back together, but you're going to get them on life support, get them moving, get them in the ambulance, get them to the hospital. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, um, they usually last an hour to an hour and a half. I did one in uh, Lake Charles this year. It was seven hours. Wow. Just talking for seven hours. Crazy, you know, and. He finally broke. Now, when you're trying to get people to to reconsider and, and actually go get help, are you using biblical uh, doctrine? Are you approaching them from being a former addict? How do you do? You read the room and kind of figure out how to speak to them. How do you approach that? Well, I mean, the first thing I do is when the family's together, when they're good, the person's going to walk in mm-hmm. and be surprised where you have all that set up. Always pray before. I asked the family, I said, do you all mind if we pray? Let's hold hands and pray. Right. You know, and, and it's amazing how many people, they're, they're just, I've never seen anybody not, not do that. I usually hit it from a, my experience because it, if somebody would have said Jesus Christ to me when I walked into CDU, I'd have run. Right. Because you were done. Yeah, right. And a lot of people in that situation are they're really angry with God. But AA is set up as well as celebrate recovery. AA brings you to God. There's no doubt about it. It comes from the Oxford group, which was a religious movement. The chapter we agnostics in there is one of the most powerful things I've ever read. So it says, most emphatically, we wish to say to any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problem in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but they are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. That's so good. Wow.
the AA literature, that has to be God-inspired. I it mean, is. It's so powerful. It when you really actually is. start reading the material, I've not read that part, but I've read through, I've got yeah. a blue book like that. Yeah. And I started reading it, and you really feel like God is in, in the pages. He is. Right. You might not even know somehow the stories in for some oh i don't i don't know most of them right but i believe when you get to heaven someday man you're gonna have like an entourage there's gonna be people up there being like billy (laughs) i remember you exactly i remember you you're the seven hour guy (laughs) but you know i mean it's it's, my life's been good it's been a lot a lot of heartache i mean a lot of heartache yeah you just accept it and do the best you can. I mean, right now I have one of my sons that are, he's, he's in trouble. I mean, I can tell. And he was in trouble years ago, real, real bad. And sent him to treatment. He did really well for eight or 10 years. But, you know, complacency. Right. And I don't know that he's using, but his behavior is. Right. It's like if you're not working in recovery, you're working on your relapse. Like you're, you're. Boy, that's a good statement. Yeah. You're, you're moving in the, in the direction of that. I think we drift back and that complacency, we start to drift yeah. away from safety, you know, and we end up isolated and then we end up using again. It's uh, a, it's a subtle foe. Yeah. It is. It's the devil himself. Amen. What are some of the ways that God has blessed you outside of the intervention? How has, how has God blessed your life? He's given me lots of opportunities. I'm not sure that God is is married to money as most people, but um, I've had some successes and I've had a lot of I've had a lot of failures. But um, He's blessed me is watching people really come to God, really get um, into into recovery. I love the outdoors. I love to fish. You know, I've had some of the greatest trips. You know, I've been to Alaska five times, and uh, I love Alaska. I've uh, been there twice. You have, yeah. I have a friend that's got a cabin and a float plane. Yeah, and uh, I've caught on my fly rod king salmon, silver salmon. They're awesome. What were you doing up there? Uh, I actually do mission work. I was up there in Nome, Alaska, with Alaska Missions, and we were working at a place called The Nest, which was a homeless shelter. Uh-huh. And so we would go out at night and find people that had overdosed, drank, whatever, pick them up and carry them back to the nest, get them in a bed, uh, get them physical help, feed them. I got to do that two years in a row, and one year I went, it was covid uh, so everything was shutting down, and we were like, what are we even doing here? Uh, but then God used me in that season to actually save a woman's life up there. Really? Yeah. Uh, she tried to kill herself with a pair of shoestrings and put them around her neck, and it was late at night, and she was throwing shoes at people. She was on the balcony of this church throwing shoes at people and clothing and all kinds of stuff, and not realizing that she had actually been violated by the police that threw her out and dropped her off. And so, Really? Yeah. And so she was dealing with all kinds of issues, and I heard a boom on the steps, and I'm like, that doesn't sound good. And I went and I found her. And, uh, she had jumped? She had put a cord around her neck and jumped, yeah. And so she was trying to end her life. And, and so then I get it off her neck and get her help. But I was there for mission work, and... That's so cool. It was really neat. I love... I, went, I walked on the Bering Sea. It was frozen. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they used to get people to go to uh, Nome, Alaska. They would tell all the guys. They'd say, yeah, there's a, a pretty girl uh, for every tree in Nome, uh, but there's no trees in Nome. It's so cold. <laughs> there's no trees. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. you, you get there, and the, and the whole Bering Sea is frozen, uh, and they they import Christmas trees for Christmas, and then 
What they do after Christmas is hilarious. They all drag their trees onto the Bering Sea and they put them upright. And they put the signs out, and it says the Nome National Forest, and it's all these dead Christmas trees. <laughs> and then the ice melts, and all the Christmas trees end up in the Bering Sea. Oh, really? Yeah, I've seen some crazy stuff in Alaska, but I've been. Oh, well, you got to be crazy to live there. You really do. It was it was negative eighteen degrees. My uh, eyes froze shut. Uh, I was working with the Iditarod Sled Dog Committee. Now, the Bayou sends people. I went with yeah. the Bayou. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep, I went with the Bayou twice. Uh, it, that must be pretty cool. It was awesome. I love it. I, I will go again as soon as um, you know the Bayou starts doing it again. I'll go again. You know, when um, when I guess it was when I was being treated for, for, for cancer and, yeah. and my son was here. I guess, you know, it was seven months. I'm telling you the truth. I had to ask people to stop bringing food. Wow. I mean, it was unbelievable. So I mean, it was every day. So so what I found out was is that I had a lot of people love me and a lot of, a lot of friends. Right. You know, I mean, really true, true friends, you know. Right. And I thought, wow, that probably is the greatest benefit. Right. That's a huge blessing. Yeah. I mean, when you're in when you're in addiction, the people that we would call friends are actually just other addicts. Oh are, yeah, they're acquaintances. You know, oh, they're yeah. or they're our drug dealers or they're whatever. But you know, I didn't have. It's crazy. I think back five years. I had I had no friends. I had enemies. If anything, I had more enemies than I had <laughs> friends. I was at a deficit. You know, yeah. and now you went to Yeah, I was like, yeah. if I was a stock market, you know, I'm I'm about to get knocked off. But um, <laughs> I, I remember when I changed, I evolved. You know, I, I became who God wanted me to be, desired me to be. I remember changing all my friends. I had to leave those yeah. those people behind. And, That's what they told me. Right. And now it's amazing. Like you just said, I'm blessed every day. Yeah. I've got men that I talk to every single day. And I was that guy that was like, I don't need friends. You know, I'm a lone right. wolf. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a wolf. I, I don't need anybody. And look at me. Take you know? care of myself. Yeah, I don't need any friends. I remember telling my wife one time, and she was like, you need to go join a small group. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. You know, I don't need to join a small group. I don't need any. I'm, I'm man enough, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah I, ended up, I ended up doing it and joining a small group and, um, yeah. and getting sober. And man, yeah. now I have some really people that I know that yeah. will be with me for life yeah. and I'll be with them for life and it's one of the greatest it, gifts you're right. and I still see some of my old friends and I love them and I tell them hello and everything like that but we are on such different paths right you know on Sunday nights I mean oh god I've had groups for years and years and years you know and, and um we have like 12 of us when everybody's here and we do different things we're not a, a, a church small group I'm, I'm telling you, I love it. I was telling uh, Brother Mike, I, I, I've always been friendly with uh, with him. But um, we, we're just finishing up a study of the uh, Serenity Prayer. We've done some Rick Warren stuff. We've done recovery stuff, and and what we do is is um, read and then di- and and then discuss, you know, right, and right. Uh, you know, good good group of men that are just trying to be better men. And they've all been through the ringer. Right. I was standing out there the other day watching the sun come up. And I said, how did I get from there to here? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know. I love it. So God has blessed you, man. I'm really just so inspired by you, man. I love the work that you're doing and how God is using you and how he's just, man, this has been such, such an incredible experience spending mm-hmm. time with you here. 
What, what would be your, your life verse? Psalms 18, uh, 16 is the Lord reached down from above, took hold of me, and pulled me from the deep waters. And that's what he did to me. But he put me on the land and said, what you going to do with it now, big boy? Right. What you going to do with it now? Yeah. You know? What would you tell somebody that may be listening that is, is not feeling God's love or they might be addicted or, you know, what would you say to encourage somebody that was at like close to a rock bottom? Or get some help. Yeah. Get some help. And that can come in several different ways. That can come in counseling. That can come in uh, meetings that are appropriate. There's something like 300 and something step, uh, step meetings. There's celebrate recovery. There's, there's um, treatment. You know, just don't be afraid to step out and do something. Because if you isolate, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's what the enemy wants. He wants to isolate us. He wants us to think we're a lone wolf. He wants to cut us out of the herd. Amen. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash belovedbygod. Please like, share, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. And... As I always say, God loves you, and so do I.